Our Bible reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 12, starting there and then going to 3, verse 9. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What then is the advantage in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being be a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim, we may say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What then shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage Not at all. 
For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. If you were alive in uh, 1998, and that's that's an if for some of you, I suppose, um, you will remember that uh, 1998 was a year of anxiety for us because uh, the earth was threatened not just once but twice uh, by massive meteor strikes that were going to wipe out all life on earth. There was a massive threat both from the movie Armageddon and from Deep Impact. Extinction events and humanity search desperately for salvation. And can I just say, thank God for America. Where would we be without them? If you're familiar with Armageddon, Bruce Willis lays down his life to bring salvation for humanity. Does that sound familiar, brothers and sisters? No, okay. It's quite natural. When there is a threat, we look for salvation, don't we? We long for salvation. Maybe the threat's not necessarily meteors hitting the earth and wiping out life as we know it. Maybe it's the threat of being summoned into the principal's office. And there you are brought to account for something that you may or may not have done. And you search for, you search for, for hope, don't you? You should have above maybe the principal's door. Uh, all ye who enter here abandon hope. Uh, I, think, I think that's... Uh, That's from somewhere else. I've stolen that. But anyway, but you look for hope. You look for something that will actually give you a future. And as the charges are brought against you by the principle, you either have to appeal to your righteousness. I didn't do it. Or to maybe a technicality, you can't prove I did it. Or my parents know people who can influence you. Or you have to throw yourself on the mercy and the grace of the principle. You've got to find hope. You've got to find some future. It's natural when we are under threat to look for a saviour. Romans chapter 1 to 3 is full of the wrath and judgment of God. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, that's no surprise to you, is it? Two weeks ago, the sermon was called, what? The Problem Part 1. Last week was The Problem Part 2, and this week is The Problem Part 3. Okay, we have been unpacking a really meaty, heavy, difficult part of Scripture. We have been seeing that there is a threat that eclipses even meteor strikes on the planet Earth in terms of its threat to our future. It is natural for us to long to look for a saviour for salvation. On what grounds are we going to be able to stand, not before the principle, but before the judge of all people? On what righteousness could we, to what righteousness could we appeal? And that's really been what Paul has been unfolding for us in the book of Romans. Now, Just a brief story so far, okay? Paul, probably based near Corinth, uh, has been writing to a church in Rome, a church that he's never visited, a church that has not seen him face to face, even though people from Rome have met him and he knows of them and they know of him. 
And he's writing to them because Paul wants to go, not on a holiday to Spain, but he wants to take the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, to Spain. And he wants the Roman church to get on board with that mission. So that's one reason that he's writing to the church in Rome. That's one reason why we have the book of Romans. The other one is there's a bit of, he's received a report that there's a bit of tension between two groups within the church, the Jewish part of the church and the non-Jewish or Gentile part of the church. So there's a bit of argy-bargy going on. And to meet both of these needs, the Apostle Paul, in the most logical way that he ever does, the most clear and systematic and extended way, he unpacks the gospel that he preaches. And he speaks in it uh, of the power of God for salvation. So there it is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He is unpacking, a gospel is just a, a good news flash. And he's unpacking the fact that this good news flash is the centre of his ministry and his life. This is what Paul preaches and what he's explaining to the Romans and so to us. But in the opening chapters, he's explaining why such good news is even necessary. And we've been working through that. And he's brought to us the fact that Every human being will give an account for the life they have lived before God. And Paul here is addressing that question of where you can look for hope. Where can you find salvation against the, the, the just judgment of God? And Paul has been knocking down false hope. So in the end of chapter 1, he's been saying, you can't plead ignorance. God has made himself plain. He has given you a moral awareness. You can't say, I didn't know. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, he's actually saying, you can't actually stand on your own performance. Because he says, you are never as good as you think you are. And you can go back and listen to last week's sermon, or better still, read the passage. As Paul unpacks... The danger of standing up and saying, those naughty pagans, I've got it all together. Paul tells us it will not stand. And here he moves on to the Jewish part of the church and particularly Jewish religion. Now, a lot of people get a bit twitchy when we start talking about Jews and the whole anti-Semitism thing comes up. Can I just say the Apostle Paul was Jewish uh, to his back teeth? Uh, and there is nothing anti-Semitic about what he is actually saying here. So let's wrestle with it. Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that wrath is coming, that judgment is coming, and God is justly, rightly angry at human rejection of him. And he says there's going to be a day where God's final judgment is given. It's there in verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. 
as my gospel declares. God judges people's secrets. We go a little bit further into 1 Corinthians. We see that Jesus will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Not only will you be judged on what you did, you'll be judged on why you did it. There'll be no point standing before the judge and saying, you can't prove it, because he can. And there is no one who has leverage over the judge of the world. Paul is saying judgment is coming and it is going to be just. For the Jew, they are going to be judged according to the law. They have God's law. They know what those standards are and God will hold them accountable to it. And for the Gentile, he's telling you, you've actually got enough that you know what is right and wrong. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 32, he tells us that the Gentiles, the pagans, know God's just decree that what they do is wrong. There is that moral awareness that God has given us, that we don't need someone to tell us that something is necessarily right or wrong. We know and God is saying, those who, are ju- who, who sin outside the law will be judged outside the law. Those who sin under the law will be judged under the law. Judgment will be perfectly just and totally scathing. Because this is not a world of monopoly. There are no get-out-of-jail-free cards And Paul now moves to demolish another one. He speaks of the myth of Jewish immunity because the Jews commonly at that time held the attitude, hey, we're God's people. Hey, we've got the old Old Testaments about that. We've got the prophets. We've got the law. We've got Moses. We've got Abraham. What's not to love? Of course God would accept us. Of course God will let us in. Of course we're okay. They look to all the good things that God has done for them. They look to all the gifts that he has given them. They look to their status that they have in them and they trust in the things rather than the the one who gave them to. Paul speaks of the law. Let's have a look at there in verses 23 and 24. He says, Do you who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law? He says, you've got the law. You know the standards. Do you break it? And the answer is, of course they break it, because he brings up, in verse 24, a quote from the prophet Isaiah, where the prophet speaks to Israel, to God's people, and says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He says, you are the worst advertisement for the righteousness of God. God's name is blasphemed. You look to the law, you don't keep the law. That is what he's saying. But then in verse 25, hey, we've got circumcision. That's the sign, surely. You can imagine the objection. That's the sign that God has accepted us, that we are secure, that we are safe. And Paul says, it has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. It's almost worse. A wedding ring is a sign of a promise. 
Yes, the promise that a husband and a wife make to one another. It's a great reminder. Circumcision is the sign of a promise. The sign of a promise that God made to his people Israel. He gave them circumcision to mark them out as his. As he bound bound himself to them in a covenant. He gave them the sign of that covenant. But just like a wedding ring on the hand of an adulterous spouse is a condemnation. So circumcision on the body of an unfaithful, a disobedient Jew is a condemnation. This is meant to remind of the faithfulness, of the promise, of the pledge that was made and it screams unfaithful. The same for circumcision. It has value as long as you keep the law, Paul says. But he's saying, Israel, you're wearing your wedding ring while you're conducting your affair. God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Paul takes this idea of Jewish immunity and knocks it flat. No, is what he says. You can't stand before the the judge of all and say, but I'm a Jew, but I've got the law, I've got circumcision. No. And the Apostle Paul himself describes in Philippians 3 how he came to that conclusion himself. He said, whatever were gains to me, all the stuff I used to look to as my go-to points. So all the things I used to think, hey, God will accept me because of this, I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage, rubbish, refuse, manure, that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness that comes from my, uh, of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Before this, Paul has listed his credentials and they are impressive. And he says, my CV doesn't cut it. No matter what righteousness he could appear, appeal to on his own merit, he says it is, it's good fertiliser for the garden. That's what it is. It is garbage. It is refuse. Paul says no. It's not going to stand. So what about us? What might we look to? In our broader community, something that I've become aware of, I've come across many Christians who will tell me that they look to the fact that they have been baptised as a mark of their security. I spoke to someone a number of years ago who related a funeral that she had been to. And she said, this is her words, not mine, that the man had lived effectively a godless life. But the pastor then said, but, let's call him Bill, Bill was baptised. And so Bill is with, with the Lord. Baptism had become a ticket 
to heaven. Can you see the parallel with circumcision? Israel was trusting in a physical sign of covenant membership. And Paul says, no. Christians trust, some of them, I've been baptised, a sign of covenant membership. And what would Paul say? He would say, no. Maybe that's not us. Maybe that's not us. Maybe we say, actually, I'm part of a Christian family. My mum and dad, they've always brought me to church. Right family. What would Paul say? No. But I've got good theology. I have good theology. I know all the answers. Okay? I can explain the atonement. I can explain all the different ways uh, that Paul talks about, that the Bible unpacks what Jesus achieved on the cross. I know all the big words ending in shun. And you know what? I've got degrees to prove it. I've got the answers. What would Paul say? No. I'm a faithful Christian. I read my Bible. I go to blast, go to basement, I lead perhaps. I go to growth group, I'm here regularly at church, I even give them some of my money. I serve. I share Jesus with my friend at work. What would Paul say? Is that the basis to which you could appeal before the judge of all to be declared righteous? Paul would say, not in a million years. And whatever we might appeal to, Paul knocks flat. Paul does not give us a leg to stand on. There's another approach to this problem, though. It's called denial. Okay? You know, we've got people now, it's, it's now, you can label people, you know, climate change deniers. There's probably some of them here. Anyone want to identify themselves as a climate change deniers? You could say, actually, you know, the meteor's coming. No, it's not. You can live in denial. And you can do that in two ways when it comes to God's judgment. One, you can say, yes, there is a God, and yes, he will judge. But he's not going to judge me. Because you know what? We just lower the standards. Uh, it's like me with high jump. Uh, weighing at 100-odd kilos, high jump is really not my thing. Uh, I kind of flop and break things, um, bars and myself. Uh, I was never good at it. Anything that involved projecting myself through the air just wasn't me. Unless there was water at the far end, I could do that. I could do that. Um, but if I lowered the bar far enough, generally to about the level of the mat, I was pretty sure I could get there. Okay? Some of us do that with the standards that we have for ourselves. And we go, of course, you know, God, you wouldn't worry about this. It's little stuff. You know, who sweats the little stuff? Can I say, you, you probably do sweat the little stuff when the little stuff is done to you. But when you do it to someone else, it's actually not that serious, is it? So maybe you're not as consistent as you think you are. But I also have to ask you, who sets the standards? If you're in class and the teacher pulls you up, do you argue? Actually, sorry, you probably do argue and you probably get away with it these days as well. But now let's change the whole thing. Maybe it's the policeman that actually pulls you across and says, excuse me, sir, excuse me, madam, 
75 and a 60 zone. Do you sit there and go, That's not, that, that doesn't say 60, that says 80, when it's clearly 60. You don't have a leg to stand on. You don't get to set the standards. The law sets the standards. The government sets the standards. And we obey the standards. The, the defendant doesn't stand before the judge and say, this is the law that you're going to judge me by. The law should be a product of the righteousness of the system. And God's law is 100% the product of his righteousness and holiness. We don't get to lower the bar. But maybe we say, look, actually, God's not going to judge because I don't believe in God. Can I just warn you at that point? Make sure, make sure that you are really certain about that. Because it's not going to work on the day for you to stand before God and actually say, I don't believe in you. You don't have the right to judge me. Make sure that you have got that one right. Because there is no coming back from it. And the way to check on that is to look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that through the resurrection, the Father appoints the Son as judge. So if Jesus rose, Jesus will judge. If Jesus is dead in the ground, well, the whole Christian thing's a waste of time anyway. Go home and enjoy your Sunday mornings. But if Jesus rose, he is judge and you should care. Again and again and again, Paul knocks down any defence that we might muster from within ourselves. So at the end of this passage, we get this, that we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. Now, I don't know how you found the last three weeks, particularly if you've been here for all three of them. As we've waded through this, Paul's focus has to be to bring us to despair, to cut the ground from underneath us, not to despair in everything, but to despair in false hope. Paul's aim is not to blast hope out entirely, but to draw us to the only one, the only thing, the only place where there is hope, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, Paul's writing to Christians. He wants them to know this. He wants them to feel this. And I think it is oh so important that we feel the power of despair, of anything that we place hope in apart from God himself. You might be saying, all this stuff about sin, what a downer. I'm really happy I came to these three Sundays at church. Can I come back next week? Next week's going to be happy and smiley, can I say? Okay, after a little bit of a dark introduction. Anyway, can I just say... We shouldn't view the Bible's teaching on sin as a negative thing. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. It lets us, can I say, understand the world in which we live. 
the Lord Jesus, the most compassionate of all people, he looked at the poor and said, the poor you will always have with you. Did Jesus say, don't bother about them? No, of course he didn't say, don't bother about them. But he recognises that the cause, the root cause of poverty is not a lack of resources, it's a lack of a heart that actually wants to share and bless the way that God shares and blesses. Poverty is not caused by economic factors. Fundamentally, it's caused by spiritual factors and the issues are sin. You could go the same with corruption, with sickness, with natural disasters. Sin underlies them all. And as we understand that this world is fractured and broken, yet beautiful, we see these contradictions and we can understand them. But if you don't have a doctrine of sin, if you don't have an understanding of sin, how do you deal with the fact that all the answers that we were promised, think about technological advance. It was going to solve all our problems. A hundred years ago, people were convinced that by this day and age, we wouldn't have to work. We'd live in utopia. Now, I ask you, we do live in the best state in Australia. okay? And Nick Xenophon's our man. He's going to fight for us. But do we live in utopia? Do we live in a, a blessed, sinless, perfect place? Why not? For all our genius, for all our advances, the same issues remain unsolved. But sin also not only lets us understand what's happening out there, but it lets us actually understand what's happening in here. If the doctor says to you, don't worry, it's just a benign lump. That's one thing. If the doctor says to you, so the diagnosis is it's a malignant tumour, that's another thing. God in his grace, through this passage, through this word, through the Bible's teaching on sin, tells us that we have an issue that nothing else will face other than the gospel of Christ. It gives us a diagnosis that lets us see our need, but then lets us see his glory and his mercy and his grace oh so clearly. It's funny, I thought I was being really clever as I went and I looked at the order of service and I worked out what songs we were going to read, uh, we were going to sing, and I, I dug up uh, a verse from the song we're going to finish with tonight, uh, today, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. I picked one that actually isn't in the version we're going to sing, but anyway, you'll get the point. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That's poetic language for saying, I don't trust no matter how good it looks, no matter how impressive the CV is, no matter how strong the case, if, if it's founded in me, I dare not trust it. It may look so convincing, but it's not going to stack up. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, 
all other ground, not just some, all other ground is sinking sand. But Paul gives us a bit of a spoiler in this passage. Look there at verse 28, 29. He shows us why Romans doesn't end at the end of chapter 3. Why there's 16 chapters, because there is so much more. He tells us in verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. You could say only one genetically, only one by birth. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Paul here is telling us the issue is one of the heart. The issue is one of loving and serving and worshipping all the wrong things, getting hung up on the stuff, on the gift, not the giver. And Paul says the answer is a transformed heart and we cannot do that. That is beyond our capacity. And the Apostle Paul will go on to unpack the wonderful gift of the gospel, how it meets that, how it lifts us out of the pit of our own sin, how it takes the curse that we deserved and gives us blessing, the blessing that Christ deserved in his place. We need a fundamental shift of loyalty. We need to reorder our solar system. Sin puts ourselves at the centre and orbits everything else around us. We need to take ourselves out of the centre and have God back in the middle. And we cannot do that by ourselves. Try as we might, no matter what we do, we remain. Someone else has to capture our heart. Now, I thought that as I'd uh, finish this sermon, I'm going to read you a bedtime story. Is that okay? It's a story that many of us will be familiar with, and you'll probably see the point. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read these books, can I encourage you to go back? I I, I didn't read them until I was about mid-30s. Can I encourage you not to wait that long? If you're a young person, if you're an old person, if you have waited that long, get on with it. Okay. What you've got in C.S. Lewis, he's not... A lot of people look at Lewis's work and think it's an allegory. It's kind of a, a model of the Christian life. Lewis actually blows that one out of the water and says it's not allegory at all. He just tries to write the Christian story as if it happened in another universe. Okay, and so Jesus is Aslan the lion, and you'll come across him in a second. At the start of the voyage of Dawn Treader, you meet this boy, okay? And the opening line is, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Uh, quite a cutting way. And Eustace, he, he's a prat. There's no other way to say it. He is obnoxious, he is rude, he is selfish, He is a complete jerk, can I say. And at one point, he he gets sucked into Narnia along with Edmund uh, and Lucy, and they're on a quest. And one part of the quest, he finds a dragon horde. 
all this gold and he finds this incredible armoring that he puts on and he's dreaming dreams of what he's going to do with this wealth and he falls asleep on the dragon's hood. And when he wakes up, the inner dragon has become an outer dragon and Eustace has been transformed into a dragon. He's cut off from his friends. His friends don't know who he is. They wonder what has happened. Maybe Eustace has been eaten by this monstrous beast. Not recognising that Eustace is the monstrous beast. And Eustace later speaks about how he gets out of this. He speaks of how he meets Aslan. He says, I looked up and I saw the last thing I expected, a huge lion was coming towards me. It came close up to me and looked straight in my eyes. I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. And at last we came up to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before. And on the top of the mountain there was a garden, trees, fruit and everything, and in the middle there was a well, and the water was as clear as anything. And I thought that if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. The arm ring, as he has transformed into a dragon, has become a tourniquet around his arm. But the lion told me I must undress first. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when suddenly I thought dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes cast their skin. Of course I thought. That's what the lion means. So I started to scratch myself and my scales began coming off all over the place and then I scratched a little deeper and instead of scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully just like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well to bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I have another smaller suit underneath the first one. I'll have to get out of that too. So I scratched and tore and this underskin peeled off just as beautifully. I stepped out and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. So I scratched it away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others. I stepped out of it, but as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claw.